Cheers, my brother. Cheers, 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 to a nano. To a nano. That sea dog blue pop blueberry ale, man. Bro, I mean, this no. smells good. Really good. You like it? Oh, yeah. Never had anything like this before. It's tasty. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Lobster and Beer. My name is Brian Thompson. Today's guest is a multi-talented instrumentalist, producer, songwriter, yoga teacher, spiritual guru, and inspiring thought leader. He's played alongside some of the biggest artists in the game, including Rihanna, Eminem, Jay-Z, Cashmere, Miguel, Tom Morello, Lady Gaga, Snoop Dogg, Kendrick Lamar, Chris Brown, Ricky Martin, Aesop Rocky, and the list goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, coming to us live from his home studio in Nashville, Tennessee, with a lobster and a beer, Onano! Dude, I need you as my hype man in like real life. <laughs> that shit was bananas. <laughs> What's cracking, my brother? Yo, man, I'm just living the dream. I got my lobster and beer. I'm ready to go. I love that, man. Also, I got to say that I love that you're coming out strong with your shorts game. <laughs> really, really. See, I mean, I'm in my sweatpants, but I'm not going to show you guys that. Hey, you just called me out in front of the whole the whole audience because no one on actually our camera can see that I'm rocking shorts right now. <laughs> but I almost wore underwear, and Alec was like, "Hey, man, I feel a little little uncomfortable with you rocking underwear next to me. So maybe nice. throw some shorts on." But but business on the top, all fun on the bottom. Exactly. I mean, that, 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 that's how we're doing. That's it. the way we roll. Are we all ready for a cheers? Yes, sir, man. Cheers, my brother. Cheers. Cheers, cheers, to a nano. To a nano. That Sea Dog Blue Paw Blueberry Ale, man. Bro, this smells good. Really good. You like it? Oh, yeah. I've never it's, had anything like this before. It's tasty. You get that blueberry. You definitely get that blueberry at the end, that blueberry finish. And the it's smell nice. even, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as soon as I cracked it open, it was just right up my nose. You got that, ooh, I like that. Dude, so tell me this lobster roll right here sitting in front of me. I can't can't even talk about the beer anymore because this thing is in my nose. This sauce that you picked for the lobster roll, tell me about it. Yeah, so we got the Nando's peri-peri sauce. My favorite version of that is the uh, medium garlic. I think it's like garlic and herb or something. It's it's bananas. It's life changing. So when I was on tour with Rihanna, actually, we uh, first of all, I want to just say that I kept a, a list in my iPhone for the four years I toured with her of all the countries that we performed in. Oh, we wow. actually performed in over 35 countries around the world. Holy shit. Five man. of the seven continents. That's like, incredible. It was bananas. What was that like? Bro, it was absolutely insane. I mean, life-changing. I was 21 to 25 at that time. And so, I mean, it just, it changed my whole life. And uh, to bring it back to the peri-peri sauce, we were in uh, UK for one of my first times ever in the UK. And uh, Rihanna was like, we got to go to Nando's. She she says it funny. (laughs) We got to go to Nando's. And uh, so... I was like, I have no idea what you're saying right now, but sign me up. And so we went out to this spot and it was like one of those restaurant experiences that just, you're like, oh shit, this is going to change the rest of my life. (laughs) Now, every time I go there, I have to seek out Nando's though. I I will say I am vegetarian, mostly vegetarian these days, kind of pescatarian diet, 
eat fish and obviously lobster every once in a while. But uh, yeah, Nando's, ever since I went vegetarian, I, I missed the sauce. And then I was in the grocery store the other day, about six months ago, and they, there it was. I was like, freaking Nando's in the grocery store? So I picked it up, introduced it to my girl, and now it's like a staple of our fridge. I, literally, we have three bottles in there just in case we run out of one. Oh, wow. What, what, have you, what else do you put it on? Everything, dude. I make a bomb breakfast burrito. Okay. Fry up some uh, potatoes and eggs, and then you put it all in a tortilla with some cheese, and then I do the Nando's with some ranch dressing. I mean... Ooh, baby. Before we even move forward, I need to... Do you want me to dip the lobster roll in there, or should I drizzle this on the roll? I mean, I'm going to dip on my side, but I'm going to take a bite without the Nando's first, because this is just looking crazy. Yeah, it's that, it's that get main lobster freshness, man. They, they know how to make the right lobster roll. You drizzled the butter on it before, too? Oh, I did so much better. I put it <laughs> on both sides of the bread, <laughs> toasted that shit. Then yes. I got the lobster on there. Then I drizzled more butter on top of it. Yes. And uh, it's, a, it's about to be crazy. I love it, man. I'm, I'm going to try this dip, too. All right, Slip I'm going for it. I've never made anything like this at my house before, so I'm pretty... I'm impressed with my skill today. Yeah. To say. I'm excited to see this bun right now. Oh, dude, you did the... Yeah, you did it right. Mmm. Is that your first try? Oh, did, you, did, you, did you try it before? This is the first bite. Legit first bite. Holy crap. <laughs> oh, first reaction. So good. <laughs> Shut up, Mark. Waiting all day. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm diving in, bro. I'm going to dip it into your Dive sauce in. right now. I got to see. Did you try the sauce yet? Dude. Whew. All right, here we Let go. me tell you. I'm amazed at how tender that lobster is, considering that it, it's like a male based product. It's really good. Mm hmm. Oh, wow. Mm. All right, now I'm going to try the Nando's with it. Let's see how that goes. The Nando's, I'll be honest, man. I was a little, I was a little nervous about the Nando's. That adds a nice flavor to the lobster. That, that heat too. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not because this is a medium Nando's. Yep. Yeah, it's not too much though. It's a, it's a no. perfect spice because I'm not burning up right now. I might be speaking too soon. In about thirty seconds, I might be sweating. I might need Matt <laughs> to get me some milk, but that's no, really this, good, this man. This is not super spicy. I can't handle spicy stuff like. I've never been able to handle anything, even jalapeno poppers and stuff like that. I can't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nando's is like a magic spice and sweet kind of vibe. Yeah, this is perfect. Um, note to producer Matt: We definitely need napkins on set for the for Ooh. the next show. I'm realizing I'm just everyone. Everyone at home is looking at me. Just wipe my hands on my shorts. Okay. <laughs> I got a pile of uh, paper towel over here just in case. <laughs> this is how we used to do it back in Maine when I was younger, though. So it makes sense. This tastes amazing, mm. man. Yeah. So this is like, excuse me. This is like childhood for you, kind of, right? It is, man. So my, I, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts, but every summer, you know, the the day school ended, my mom would pick me up. We had one of those old Dodge caravans with the wooden paneling on the side, and my mm -hmm, mom would mm -hmm. would fill that thing to the brim with everything we needed for the summer. She would pick me up out front at school and drive me up to Maine to our summer house in York Beach, Maine, and we'd stay there the whole summer. And which, what was ridiculous about that too is I used to complain about leaving our hometown in Massachusetts because mm -hmm. I was leaving all my friends and stuff to go to this beautiful beach town. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, multiple times during the summer, there was this one spot called the Lobster in the Rough. And we go there oh, with wow. our whole family and we'd sit down and you get, you know, fresh lobsters cooked there to order. 
and we'd, we'd have this experience where we sit around the, the picnic table, we crack lobsters and, and just, you know, have a good time with family and a good experience talking about life and stuff, man. So this, mm. this is, uh, this definitely, yeah, you're right. This, this plays a, a big part in my childhood. Absolutely. I love that social aspect of food. You know, it just, it seems to open people up and people bond really fast. And some, you know, there's just so many amazing memories, I think, from all of our lives that have to do with the different foods that we eat. But Absolutely. I love that environment of like that beautiful area with a picnic table. And that's so awesome. Absolutely, man. So speaking, speaking of childhood, man, you, before we get into the, the career that you blossomed, take me back. So you, you, you started as a keyboard player. Take me back to the early days, how you got into playing keys and, and you know, what inspired you at, at that time to, to get into it and start playing. Oh, man. Well, <clears throat> my dad was a musician, is a musician. My mom is also a musician. And so when I was born, they were full swing music all the time. My dad was a, a music pastor in the church for 33 years. He's actually an ordained minister and he has uh, his master's in theology. Yep. And so he is... He's capable of being a, a pastor that would give like a sermon, but he went into doing music on Sundays and then that was his career path. He was also a orchestration and theater arts major in college. So when I was born, my parents weren't just doing music in church. They were legit doing like Broadway style shows <laughs> for the Christmas seasons. I mean, there was at least four major production shows they would put on every year. Yeah. And wow. the Christmas time one was massive. And uh, not only would they do that for Christmas, but they would actually write them. So by the time I was like in my, maybe five years old, they were writing their Christmas shows. So it wasn't just them like performing somebody else's music all the time. They were legit writing scripts and songs, and then they'd bring in choreography and they'd build sets, and it was like huge. Yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah. So when I was young, I was born into that. And so it was creativity all the time. And, uh, and then my mom tells this story that when I was around six years old, one day she found me on the piano just trying to play by myself, try to play like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or something like that. <laughs> So then she got the idea, I wonder if I could show him some Mozart or some Beethoven. And because uh, she was also a piano teacher at that time. So she just kind of started teaching me by ear and like showing me, why don't you play this with your right hand? And then I'd play it and then play this with your left hand. And then I was immediately in love with it. And there's something, I think everybody that either plays music or just listens to music, everybody feels the magic of music there's something in it that is just inherent in our being. And um, so what I immediately fell in love with was the idea that I could learn these incredible songs that, you know, people from the past had made. I grew up mostly playing classical music as a foundation. Yeah. And so I fell in love with that. I got addicted to that, that there's like a piece of paper with notes on it. And if I can learn that, I can play what Beethoven played. I can play what Mozart played. And I just, I'm, I'm addicted to that. I'm still addicted to that. I'll, I'll make a beat or I'll make a song in my studio and I'll listen to it for like three days straight. 
I won't listen to anything else. I'll just listen <laughs> to that thing. So when you when you say that though, so do you not? Because I know a lot. Of, speaking as a musician, I know a lot of my friends who are music, musicians as well. They struggle with, and I struggle the same. When we create something day of, a lot of the time we look back at it and we're like, ah, you know, it's that immediate, you know, self deprecating attitude where we're like, nah, that's, it's, it's, it's not worth it. That's not good. You know, and then we lose our, you know, we, we strip ourselves of validation, but, but what you just said is totally different to me, which probably plays a lot in, in the way that you kind of came up for yourself. It's a little bit of both, you know, I, of course I have that part of myself as an artist. I'm always second guessing and doubting and thinking that this could be better or that could be better. Yeah. But I think also there was a turning point in my production and I'm going to jump like years ahead in my journey where by the time I ended up quitting working with Re, my main goal was to have a studio in LA. And then I just started doing my homework and I'd go to that studio every single day. I'd put in 12 to 14 hours just wow. teaching myself how to produce, teaching myself how to mix. Because uh, at that phase, the the seed that got planted in my mind, I was working just after working with Re. Back in L.A., uh, we had this guitar player in the band, in Rihanna's band, named Nuno Betancourt, and he's from uh, the band Extreme. He wrote that song, More Than Words. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's like a legend, and and he connected me with uh, this studio in town. Well, both he and Jay Brown, because Jay Brown was uh, Rihanna's main A&R. And so they both connected me with the producer named No ID. Oh, and, wow. Uh, He's massive. You know, yeah. He's a huge dude. Oh, absolutely. And at that time, he had me come into the studio and I was, I was working with him for a few months there. And one day we got into a conversation and just to set the scene, Common was in the studio. <laughs> no ID was over there. And then it was like me and two or three other dudes. So one day while we're having this conversation, No ID said, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what comes out of the speakers. The speakers yeah. never lie. That's the exact thing he said. The speakers never lie. Yeah. And that really struck a chord in me. And, and I was already kind of on that page of wanting to learn how to make my song sound amazing. Um, also, another, another short story. Uh, while I was on tour with Ruby, she and Chris Brown were dating at the time. And I had started showing Chris some of the music that I was producing at that time. And he loved it. We actually, we ended up writing a few songs together. One got pitched to the Jonas Brothers. Another got pitched to the Backstreet Boys reunion album. And while ultimately those songs did not end up anywhere in the public, it showed me that I have what it takes, that Absolutely. I can do this. Yeah. Um, and yet it also, me, it also showed me exactly what I was lacking, which yeah. was a wide catalog and a, like a professional quality of just my demos, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I then got my own studio and really just started putting in the homework. And so, yeah, back to your original point, I've always been hypercritical of my stuff, but there's, there was a turning point maybe around 2014 where there was this one song that I wanted to make and it was called bullet through my brain. Yeah. And uh, my brother and I were working on a, a band project together at the time. And I had started writing this song just before I quit working with Re. And then when I got into my studio, eventually I started producing it and it just sounded like garbage. I couldn't get 
I couldn't get it to work. You know, it just, it wasn't what I had in my head. And so then I, I put it on the back burner for maybe six months and I'd try it again and it still sucked in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> and literally two years later was when we finally finished that song and the growth that I had been on in those two years, I w it's like, I wasn't capable of making that song two years earlier. Yeah. It took me two years to learn how, how to do what I wanted to do. And then when we finally finished it and then we got it mixed and mastered, we made a music video for it there. I remember this night very clearly. I was on my couch and I watched it back <clears throat> and I got all like chills up and down my whole body. And no joke. I started crying. Cause I was like, I finally did it. Like I finally <laughs> got that thing that was in my yeah. head to come out of the speakers. And now the speakers aren't lying anymore. Wow. And, uh, and so right around that time there, I was going through, you know, one of those kind of growth milestones as a producer and everything I started working on from that point forward, I felt like I was getting closer to consistently pulling my imagination out of the speakers. Yeah. Wow. That's and a great then, way to put it too. I love that. Yeah. It yeah. shows like, again, I mean, painting it, a story, you know, and, and really focusing in and like I said, being able to take that image yeah. and what you're envisioning in your head and then actually being able to hear it. That's really feeling something. Yeah. And, and the journey and the testament to how much time it takes to put yeah. into a production. It's not, you're not sitting down oh, yeah. for one eight hour session. And no, sometimes no. that first idea can develop yeah. into something All totally different. All about the different. first idea. Yeah. Yes. And that's actually an, a huge lesson I learned from Chris Brown. Chris was one of the most inspirational people to me at that time. And it's unfortunate what happened between he and, and Rihanna. But just speaking about his creative ability, that dude is wild. Like he is absolutely insane with how he creates. And the number one thing I learned from him as a producer was go with your first instinct and don't question it. And don't think about what's coming next. I remember I walked into the studio. We had just gotten off tour. It was one of those magical, magical nights, right? Magical story. Yeah. I, I get into this studio in LA. It's literally just me, Chris, Rihanna. Yeah. Rob A, who wrote the song Disturbia and the other song Forever. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just the four of us and possibly an engineer. And I turned up to the studio with a CD. I had a CD of beats. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, put it in the, in the system. So we, we start bumping it. And I had maybe six or seven songs on there and, and uh, he plays the first song and within, you know, probably 30 seconds, he's like, all right, next goes to the next one. He gives another 30, 45 seconds. Okay, next. And we get to the next one. And then within the first 10 seconds, he starts singing an idea and he's immediately vibing. And he's like, I like this idea. And it was all based on like one word. And then next thing you know, he's like, all right, I'm going into the booth. And it was that fast. Wow. And then he just goes into the booth and he starts laying down whatever's flowing through his mind. And, uh, and that became the process. And we did that a few times with each other. And so I immediately started seeing in Chris that he doesn't doubt his little ideas. Yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't even try to come up with the best idea from the beginning. It's like, this is the idea that I have right now. So I'm going with it. Yeah. And I think that really impacted my songwriting and production process where I no, I no longer try to judge that small moment of excitement. Yeah. I no longer try to think about where is this going to go or what are people going to think or any of that stuff. It's like, 
I found this idea and it's resonating so deeply within me. I just have to pursue that. And so my production abilities now is that's like where I start all the time. And then I just follow that. So I feel like I'm always going from just one idea to one idea to one idea. Yeah. And then, yeah, bro, in the last 10 years of being a producer, I've made probably 350, 450 songs. Yeah. And yet, if you look at my Spotify, I've released, I think, less than 10. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. The common, yep, the common syndrome, man. But so I got to ask a question. So I can't help but wonder, that that lesson that you learned working with Chris, though, I feel like that's... That's not something you necessarily just learn off of a whim. I feel like that's something that is grown innately in you. And I want to rewind because you, you told us how you know you you started music with your parents and and their inspiration for what they were doing. But you you picked up piano yourself and started working through that, and then you you moved to L.A. and yeah, and you got a job with Rihanna. Walk, walk me through that process. Yeah. So, so again, going back to childhood, just briefly, by the time I was around 10 years old, I was capable of playing in bands. And then by the time somewhere between 10 and 11, my dad started giving me opportunity to play every once in a while in the church service. Okay. And so that started my experience with bands. And then by the time I was like 13 or 14, I had all of this knowledge of the piano in me that I started learning guitar. And also, I wanted to say I didn't teach myself piano. I started by experimenting by myself, but I had my mom as a teacher, my dad, and then I had maybe four or five other teachers, actual piano teachers. And so I always saw the value of mentorship. And getting that lesson at such a young age, I think, is one of the main things that has impacted my success. Um, And so then... By the time I'm in high school, I, I teach myself how to play guitar. I, I did do that. But that was all based on my knowledge of the piano and music theory. So then I learned guitar and I, I form a few rock bands in high school. And uh, we had a really great time with that. And then eventually one of my bandmates moved to L.A. He went to Musicians Institute. And I visited him maybe six months later. And I was like, you mean to tell me this is an option for college? Like, <laughs> yeah, I want to do this. This is incredible. Music all day, every day. Yeah. And so then I, I signed up to go to MI. And well, first of all, I went to community college in Oregon. I got my um, associate's degree, my two-year degree. And I was also homeschooled, by the way. That's a major element. Your parents homeschooled you? My childhood. Yeah, I was homeschooled all the way up to oh, community wow. college. And I went to community college starting at 16. And so that's how I was able to move to LA by 18 with a college degree. Wow, so you're and, really smart, uh, huh? Yeah, yeah. seriously. <laughs> but also, like, like, no joke, though, I really think the public school system is bullshit. Like, that's my opinion, because if nothing else, it takes up all of your time. And I think it's a form of social programming that's going to try to set you up for the corporate lifestyle that's, like, the mandated way to go or the safe route. But homeschool was like, especially this is way before even most forms of internet, let alone social media. So my parents were really disciplined. I'd wake up, we do homeschool from like 7.30 a.m. to noon. 
And then I'd have the rest of my day to do whatever I wanted. And meanwhile, I can't hang out with any friends. They're all in school and stuff. So I'd sit down at the piano and I'd spend three to four hours every single day learning how to play piano. So it was majorly impactful. Yeah. So it, it helped open that time up for you where the, totally. yeah, that's incredible. And that's totally. something that you don't think about again, you know, really. When you... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I yeah, did... because honestly, you can get school done that fast. I and agree. like, I don't know. I, I think it's absolutely insane that my friends were going to school for eight and even in high school, they were going for 10 or some hours. And then they come home and they have boatloads of homework and all of that. And they have after school stuff and all of And I'm just like, Dude, you guys, I'm getting my math work done in like 45 <laughs> minutes. Why are you taking so long? <laughs> What's up, guys? As always, thank you for listening, and I promise we'll get back to the episode right away, but I want to let you know about something special we're doing. Here at LMB, mental health is very important to us, so we've collaborated with today's guest to create a custom t-shirt based around subjects that we've talked about in this episode and other important topics in their lives. If you go to our website, lobsterandbeard.com, you can purchase the t-shirt and 100% of the profits this month will go to a mental health organization. Now, back to the episode. Dude, so, so move on with me here. So, learned in school teaching yourself the piano with your parents there and then from there you went to college and then you ended up moving to LA with yeah. a, and would I you went you moved to LA with with a dream is that correct totally 100% yeah. yeah so i had a i'd started teaching piano students actually by the time i was around 15 or 16 and so those last 2 years in my hometown i i did that as an income and saved up enough money to afford to live in LA without a job for about seven months. Yeah. So I just started saying this sentence. And I think what I'm about to say, I think is going to come up in many different ways throughout our interview. But I started saying this sentence to my friends, which is that I've got, I'm giving myself six months to get a professional job. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to LA. And six months later, I got a professional <laughs> job in the industry. Uh, but you know, I, I don't want that to sound too like crazy to, to people. I don't like I recognize how unique that is, is what I'm trying to say. But at the same time, my path was being divinely guided. So I went to this school and then there was there was a teacher there named Barry Squire. And all he taught was one class and it was an elective. And this class was basically how to do auditions how to put it, how put, how to put together EPKs and press kits and things like that. But realistically, this class was just listening to this guy, Barry talk for 45 minutes. Yeah. And I entered his class, like, holy shit, the information he's giving out is, is life-changing. It's amazing. And on top of that, his job in the real world was to host auditions for artists that are looking for bands and he, so he kind of acts like a music agent, even though what's beautiful is as a musician, you don't pay him anything. The artist will hire him and then he puts the call out to all of these musicians and then he like hosts the auditions. And then usually there's a music director or somebody from the artist camp and they're watching it and then they are the ones that are choosing the people. Yeah. So I, because I knew Barry and I started doing some auditions with him, uh, I just started going into the audition circuit and I started getting callbacks and how I got my very first gig was I was doing an audition for Gwen Stefani 
And so I'm like 19 years old. I've been in LA for five months, you know? Yeah. And all of a sudden Gwen Stefani is available. And so I, I gave it my all. I spent like three days out of the weekend getting ready for that audition. I turn up to the audition and uh, they gave me the callback. So then there was like, you know, 20 dudes that showed up and now there's five callback slots. I got one of them. Everybody else is like 30 plus and I'm yeah. 19. So yeah. I get the callback. I come back and I do it. And then the waiting game. And I, it takes like a week or two before I hear that this guy, Chris, had gotten the gig. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I really wanted that gig. <laughs> but, you know, in hindsight, I wasn't ready for that shit. Yeah, That yeah. still though, had to be really gratifying, though, again, to be in a room with uh, 19, yeah. with a bunch of 30-year-olds, you know? Yeah. And uh, that, really had to, that really had to feel like something, at least in the moment, whether you got it or not. Yeah, it did feel like I was on the right path and that I, I knew what I was doing. Uh, so then Chris was in Liz Fair's band and Liz Fair, uh, she's mostly known for her indie rock stuff in the past, but a lot of people know her from that song. Why can't I, yes, why I can't I breathe whenever I, I think, think about, about you. you. Yeah. Yeah, that, was, that was popular about a year before I did this audition. Yeah. So Chris was in Liz's band and they were getting ready for uh, a four month tour and then Chris picked up the gig with Gwen. So he bounced on that gig. So now the Liz band, the MD calls Barry and says, hey, whoever you had for the callback for Gwen, can you just have them come audition for us? Oh, wow. So the four of us go into that gig and uh, we audition. And then I got that gig. And how I got that gig was because I was the only keyboard player that came in that simultaneously played the keyboard and a tambourine. At the same time. <laughs> and she just thought it was cool. Do you have a tambourine with you yeah. right now? <laughs> is, 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 the, is the keyboard... Hold on, hold on. Is the keyboard turned on right now? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Next time, though. I need to see Tambourine, that. Tambourine, always within arm's reach. <laughs> I love that. Love I love that. Lives right on the edge of my keyboard. So, no, no. The Liz Fair gig... How long were you mm -hmm. with that? And then where was the trans? What did did Liz Fair? Did that opportunity move into the the Rihanna gig, or what happened in between that? Yeah, there was a middle step, but um, that really opened up my ability to be in the professional music world. Yeah, because you know, like any industry, it's always hard to break in, but then as soon as you get in, then it's all about how do you turn it into your next gig and your next gig, and. I think in the music world, and I do think that this is true for most businesses, but in the music world, it's all about relationships and it's all about professionalism. Yeah. And so your reputation is king. That was a major lesson that I learned from my dad and a lot of people in the church when I was younger, that your re reputation is the only thing you have. And so as soon as I got on that gig, I wasn't behaving like a 19 year old, you know, I was behaving like a professional. And they were all trusting me. In fact, it was a, it was a little bit of drama, not really drama, but they were, they had concerns because we were going to be playing all these bars and I was under 21. <laughs> and so they're like, I, they don't know if they're going to create a problem for the venues and stuff, but luckily we didn't have any problems. They took a chance on me. And, you know, so I told them I'm going to be professional. I'm not going to drink. And at that phase of my life, I wasn't drinking anyways. So it wasn't a hard thing. But I just always, I was taught that, that 
music is what you make it. And so if you treat it like a profession, you can actually get that. You can actually do that. And I think a lot of people treat it like either like a hobby or like a wish, or they think, oh, if I do this, I'll get something else like girls or fame or whatever. And so it's like music's not really their main goal. And mine, that was, that was the only thing I wanted to do was just be on stage. Yeah. I can't so, I, I, yeah. So after the Liz gig, then, um, then it just started coming through people knowing me. And I, one of my good friends from music school, he got a gig with this girl named Cheyenne Kimball. And, uh, then he had me join that band. And at that time, this was like 2006 and she had an MTV reality show. She was kind of like Ashley Simpson 2.0. It was like just after <laughs> Ashley. And so then I, I joined that band and I did that for a year. And then that came to a close. And then again, just through friend networks, an independent artist out of Florida named David. Oh God, I can't remember his last name. Sorry. Sorry, David. If you're out there listening. <laughs> Hey, David, David, we love you. Hey, this yeah. one's for David. Cheers, David. Yeah, we love Cheers, you, David. 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 Cheers, David. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, he has a, he played a big part in getting the Rihanna gig, like by proxy. So I ended up going out on an independent tour with David and uh, it was super indie. We were just doing coffee shops, just he and I, me on piano, him on guitar and vocals. And I did that for about four months. And then I was about to go out and do my last scheduled gig with David. And I woke up one morning in my apartment to a phone call. And uh, actually, I missed it. it, went to my voicemail. And I listened to it. And it was this guy named Tony. And he's like, Hey, I got your number from Barry Squire, who I mentioned earlier. And I work with this artist named Rihanna. We have a keyboard player, but he's not really working out. We think you might be a good fit for the band. Do you want to come down and audition tonight? Wait, was this Tony Maserati? No, no, who I did work with later, but this is Tony Bruno. Tony Bruno, okay, okay. As a MD for um, Rihanna's band at that time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I called Tony back, but here's, I'm a very spiritual person. There's a very interesting spiritual thing that happened right at this moment in my life. So I got that voicemail, right? And then immediately my heart and my soul started buzzing. And it wasn't because Rihanna was big. Rihanna, the umbrella had not even come out yet. In fact, one of the audition songs I got was Umbrella. That, so it was like four months before that even hit the radio. So all Rihanna was known for at that time was Unfaithful. What was your, what, what was your, first, your first thought of Umbrella? Now knowing hindsight, what it was. When you first played oh, yeah. it, what was your thought of it, if you remember? Oh, my, my literal first thought was these drums bang so fucking hard. <laughs> and then when Jay-Z came in, I was like, holy, how does this guy <laughs> have so much swag? So much swag. And then I just, I thought it was a dope song. But, you know, I, I was kind of a little bit sidetracked with having to learn it my first time hearing it. So I was immediately in kind of an analytical mode. But I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, so I, I went down that night. Oh no, I'm sorry. I was going to tell you the spiritual moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I call Tony back and I tell him I'd love to come down and audition. And he says, great. Uh, you know, I'll tell you more details later, but we're, we're gearing up for a small tour. So, uh, come down tonight and I get off the phone with him. <clears throat> it's like 10 30 in the morning and 
hang up the phone and immediately my soul just I, all I could think was I have to pray right now. And so I, I don't always do this, but I got down on my knees kind of like in prayer pose up against my bed. And I just started praying a, a deep prayer of gratitude. And it's so strange when I tell this story because there's no reason why I was feeling this, but my soul was just like, Oh my God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And I've never had that reaction to any other audition. Of course, I've been stoked and I've been grateful, but this specific reaction was coming from somewhere beyond me. And so I, I just immediately prayed and was like recognizing that this was going to be big, even though I didn't know why. That's beautiful. You felt, you felt something from it. And yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, and honestly, hearing the story that comes before that, it's almost like you manifested this moment. And you yeah, prepared yourself for that point. And there, there was that moment that you, you felt it, that it was happening, which is, which is incredible. Yeah, 100%. I feel like my, my journey through life, the, the same thing that led me into the Rihanna gig is the same thing that led me out of the Rihanna gig. Is that I've always followed that still small voice in the middle of my chest, which to me is the voice of spirit. That's the voice of God. And... I've always followed that no matter what, no matter how weird it might get or how perfect it might get. Yeah. It's, that's my true north is when my soul vibrates and I feel that still small voice. That's when I know. And that's what I always try to follow. And it's strange because sometimes it, it leads me in directions that, that my logical brain doesn't understand. But my, like I said, my soul, it knows and it resonates. And that's, that's all that I need. Yeah. So, and I felt that. That's why I immediately dropped down and prayed, and I was just so oh, grateful. That's powerful. And then I turned up that night to the audition, and I, we played the three songs that I had learned, and then we did a jam, and they wanted me to solo, and and it was just one of those magic solos because I'm not like I'm not a shredder, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I can hold my own, but I'm not. I've never been a shredder. I'm like. I'll play the most difficult classical piano thing that you could imagine. But if you want me to improvise that, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but you did, you did it that night. But that night I did. And it was just one of those beautiful moments. And so then they hired me on the spot. They're like, can you start tomorrow at noon? And uh, so then we did about three weeks of rehearsals. And then we popped over to London and we started our European promo tour where we were playing six songs total at festivals, usually around three in the afternoon. Yeah. And so, you know, they were just breaking Rihanna. It wasn't like she was Rihanna yet. But I love to tell this part of the story because that's where we started. And that was uh, around May of 2007. Yeah. November, December of 2007. So six months later, we are now back in Europe playing sold out shows at stadiums to 15 to 20,000 people. Wow. And we filmed a live DVD on that tour. And so it was an explosion, man. So what, what happened between that moment that you started playing with her and you hit tour to, to what you're speaking of now when you were starting to play in front of 15 to 20,000 people? Yeah, literally umbrella happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was the umbrella. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> umbrella hit the radio and then it just fucking exploded wow and also not to mention that that album for those that don't know is called good girl gone bad and that album 
on its original release because they ended up doing deluxe copies. Uh, forgive me if I get these stats wrong because it's been a long time, but I believe it had 11 songs and nine of them were number one singles on oh. Billboard. I guess we should cheer. I guess we should cheers to that too. Cheers to that. That's incredible. Yeah, it was insane. So that I mean that 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 changed your career from that point because you like you said you went from playing the 3 p.m. slots on Sundays at festivals to that album hitting. Was the first single off of that Umbrella? That album's first single was Umbrella, as far as I remember. And then we just started going through them all. There was uh, Rehab. Actually, I think Rehab was maybe on the deluxe edition. There was Shut Up and Drive, which I'm in that music video. That was really fun. And uh, what else was on that album? Man, it's, it's been over 14 years ago for me. So it's a long, long time ago. But so many singles. So let me ask you this, man. So I, I know what it's like to... I'm actually going to take that back real quick. Let me ask you this. You start with Rihanna. She has no hit. Mm -hmm. She's just an artist that you were brought on. She's signed to a label. You start playing with her. What's the, how many people were in the band at that time? Uh, we had four, including myself, four total, and then two background singers. Yeah, and from there, like, you guys were torn around, and were you, like, were you guys all hanging out all the time? On tour. Yeah, it was like yeah. a family, man. Yeah. That was the other thing. Those the first two years of touring with her was so insanely magical because she was 19 at the time. I had just turned 21. Wow. And so for her, it was a dream come true. For all of us, it was a dream come true. <laughs> yeah. And we're all like, you know, nobody's jaded yet. We're all just out there like soaking it in and just can't believe we're doing what we're doing, you know? And I mean, for me, it was like three years prior, I was in my hometown. And now three years later, I'm touring around the world. I'm playing in Sweden and in Japan. Like we played a show in Japan where Lincoln Park opened up for us. And I was like, what the actual fuck? <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I love Lincoln Park. They're my, one of my favorite bands, especially <laughs> at that time. And were you able to recognize like that moment, you know, when it was like, like, you know, that you were all young, like, did you, were you able to take a second and be like, wow. Like, oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. So uh, here's another thing. Not a lot of people know about me. I wear this ring on my finger and uh, I got this when I was around 15 years old. My dad took me to San Francisco to see my favorite band called Dream Theater. Oh yes. And, love Dream Theater. Uh, love yes. Dream Theater. So I got this ring on the Fisherman's Wharf. And then when I got home, I was too young to get a tattoo. So what my next best thing was I wanted to get my ring engraved. And I engraved it with the phrase, I am a dreamer. And so it became my true north. Every time I was in community college or like just had that overwhelming feeling of like, I got to I gotta get to my future. I got to get to my goals. I had this ring on my finger and I would just look at it and I'd remember... I'm going, I'm going, I'm a dreamer, I'm gonna do it. And, uh, and the next thing you know, I'm on this stage. And so a ritual of mine, to answer your question, Alec, a ritual of mine was at the very end of every single show, I'd kiss my ring and I'd say, thank you to God. I love that. And that was it. 
love every it. single show. You know that you said that to Alec. Now he's gonna start doing that after every show. One hundred percent. I already got the ritual in, baby. Let's go. I'm gonna get a wait till, wait till episode two. He's gonna have a ring on his thumb. I'm Yep. Yep. It was the best. Yeah. But I've always been super grateful for this man. Like. I don't know. I, I don't know how to compare myself to other people, but it's, I've never had an opposite of that. You know, I've always just seen the gift that this is and being able to be out there. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I was always in that mindset. It wasn't something I ever had to learn. I mean, maybe I was taught it when I was a kid, but for me, it was just, you know, like, wow, wow, I get to do this. This is absolutely insane and i love it that's incredible what's up guys if you like what you're hearing today and want to dive deeper into the lobster and beer world with us head over to our website lobsterandbeer.com to join our patreon you will gain access to exclusive video content monthly giveaways incredible discount codes from get main lobster opportunities to join us on air with our guests and so much more but that's not all this season one lucky member of our patreon family will win a trip for two to come hang out with us in phoenix flights and hotel included courtesy of the homies at Get Maine Lobster. We'll bring you out to some of our favorite breweries in town and, of course, eat some lobster rolls together. So don't miss out on this opportunity. Head over to lobsterandbeer.com to join our Patreon today. And now, back to the episode. Dude, so Umbrella Hits, you say that, you know, leading up to that, you guys were a family as a band. And Umbrella Hits, Rihanna takes off. I can't, I can't even imagine where you guys are playing festivals. She's doing interviews. She's doing photo shoots. She's doing commercials. I'm sure the label at this point is exploiting her to a level that as regular people who are watching the show right now have no idea what that's like. How did oh, yeah. that, did, did that change the dynamic that you had as that, that family, you know, as, as a band where she's off doing all this stuff and you guys were used to being in the hotels, being on tour together all the time. And now she's off doing all this. And, you know, what was it like at that point where things changed? Well, so it, it's an interesting story because actually where we started with each other was at the moment that Umbrella got broke to the public. Oh, wow. So, so we, I didn't have years before with her in that way. But Umbrella popped off and then she became super busy. We all became super busy. We probably honestly played about, I'm just guessing, but somewhere around 200 shows a year. Wow. For those first few years. And uh, it was insane. But those first two years, while we were that busy and she was doing photo shoots, and I'll tell you a story about Eminem's collaboration with her and the song Love the Way You Lie. Um, but yeah, she was always busy, always, always. Uh, but she was we were all so young and it was, we had excess energy, you know? So it's like you do a show and then you go to an after party and then you stay up on the tour bus and then you sleep until 4 PM and you do it all the next day. And so we were just going, going, going. And that's where the family vibe was actually being built. Yeah. Was that we were imagine. all kind of on this rocket ship to the moon and we were just loving it and just enjoying every moment of it. And then where things really started to change was actually two years later, two years into the gig. So this is around 2009, when she and Chris Brown had their domestic violence situation happen. Uh, it was so 
gut-wrenching for so many reasons. Because you, you, you had a friendship with Chris b- before with Chris, all of that. Chris was on tour with us for about a year before they went public as a couple. Yeah. So wow. he was actually on tour. Like, I mean, I have so much video footage of me just like filming him skate in the backstage because he, uh, my biggest hobby was video and he loved skateboarding. He's like, you want to film? And we just started bonding with each other. Yeah. So and you saw, you you saw know, that. Started re- writing and- yeah. You saw that relationship develop from the beginning totally. before the public knew at that time. Yeah. To give people an understanding of how toxic this, um, media can be uh chris and her just they were friends for a long time and then they started dating each other and then i remember there was this one time we were all down in jamaica together and we were doing a show and there was a paparazzi tabloid photo that had somehow got snapped of them kissing each other in the pool and it was crazy because at that time I don't know which publication put out this this number, whether it was TMZ or something like that, but they had a $100,000 bounty on the first photo of them kissing. Wow. And so somebody got it, you know, yeah. and that's kind of how it blew up. But yeah, they were, they were just kids, you know, like they were both 19. When you're 19, do you want the world watching you? Do you want the world hunting a photo of you kissing your lover? Like, it's shit like that's insane to me. So I can't imagine so, you probably saw the effect of that type oh yeah. of stuff. on. Ben oh, yeah. There was another time we were celebrating Chris Brown's birthday. We were all on tour. This is when Chris and Ree were actually, we were doing a, a co-headlining tour together. So they were performing. We were performing. We went out. We celebrated his birthday. At the end of the night, we we had... We don't usually travel like this, but on that night, because it was a special occasion, we had one gigantic stretch, like Hummer or something like that. And we all get back into it. And as as they get into the door, somehow the window got rolled down just enough for two paparazzi to stick their camera right into the car. And they had rapid fire uh, flashes just going off. And then those pops, they go running down the street. And Chris Brown's security guard runs after him. This is, this is all a public story, so I'll tell the full thing. He ended up tackling one of the dudes and broke his camera, and then he ended up getting sued by the, by the camera guy. Wow. It was just dramatic. It's like always an invasion, you know? And then everywhere we'd go in airports, you have just people shouting, people taking pictures, people wanting pictures. Of course, there was a shitload of love, like so many people love. Uh, but then there was all these douchebags everywhere too, you know, <laughs> it's just, yeah. it is what it is. So, so yeah, like the, well, one day will we see an Aneno, you know, produce Chris Brown skate video? Do you still have that footage? <laughs> it's in my archive. It's in my archive. All I got to say is follow my YouTube channel because, you know. There we go. Know. It's coming soon. What's the, what's the, yeah. what's the YouTube channel? My YouTube, you can find me by searching for Oneno, uh, but I believe if you want to actually find it, youtube.com slash C slash I am Oneno. I love it. And all of my social links can be found on my website too, which is I am Oneno.com. I love that. And so before we continue the story, I've wanted to ask you this question for a long time. What is the story behind the name Oneno? Hmm. 
it is a large story. It's large and short, I guess, at the same time. It, the, the meaning to me is very large. Um, so let me give you a few more bullet points because uh, they, they play into that answer. So around 2009, maybe early 2010, working with Re, there was a day that came, came up for me where all of a sudden I realized I didn't love what I was doing anymore. And like I said, that still small voice in the middle of my chest gave me the nudge one day and said, hey, I think you can move on. You're ready. You're ready to move on. You're 24 years old. You got a shitload of money in your savings. You have a ton of network. My goal has always been to be an artist. And so that still small voice said, you can stay here. You can be safe and comfortable. You could probably do this gig until you're 40. Or you can follow your bliss, follow your joy, and uh, live in alignment with what your heart wants and thank this opportunity for what it has been and move on to the next thing. And so I did that. And uh, again, briefly, just on what was going on there was Chris and Ree had gotten into their domestic violence situation. And that is really where the gig changed. Everything changed after that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, there's so much to tell. So I'll just kind of skip over it for now, unless there's something specific you want to hear. But paparazzi got crazy. Media got insane. She kind of went away for six months. And, uh, you know, it was absolutely insane. And did, so that, did you we, seeing that, you know, kind of, you know, seeing all that craziness and then Rihanna stepping away, did that, you know, kind of make you be like, whoa, you know, you, maybe you dreamed of you wanting that, but then maybe at that point you were like, whoa, you know, maybe this is not what I want. There was definitely a lot of that, like, or I should say some of that. That wasn't the main thing that kind of did it, but that was a huge eye opener for me realizing that, you know, she has no private life. You can't leave a hotel and get in a car yeah. without 75 people wanting your photo. So it's pretty insane. So I definitely started seeing that, you know, maybe this is not all it's cracked up to be. Um, but really, I think my depression set in as a, uh, just by kind of being around Rihanna's depression. And that is, I'm not blaming her at all. I understand her depression so deeply. But she felt trapped. She felt like she was living in a fish bubble and or a fishbowl, whatever they say. and. Uh, and so she got really depressed and that started just being the vibe, being the vibe of the backstage. And, and then management was trying to be all political. And so they started separating the band from her. And so that whole family vibe just basically immediately changed. And then that's when things started feeling like a job. And then uh, I don't want to name names here, but there was some people involved that started meddling in what the band was allowed to play and not allowed to play. Oh, wow. And so that really affected my happiness as a musician. And I just was like, well, you know, you're really limiting my, my ability to create, my ability to be here. And it hasn't been that way. And now it's turning into this whole corporate situation that I'm not in. So... I then thought it was my time to bounce. And there's this, there's just this whole, it's just such a, a big convoluted story. There's so many elements to it. Um, so yeah, then I, I quit and I started learning how to produce and trying to teach myself how to take my imagination and come out of the speakers, like I was saying. 
And uh, so then my uh, immediately after I quit working with Ree, my brother and I had formed a band. And that was an awesome project that we did for about three or so years. And then that band came to its end. And so then I was bandless and artist nameless. And I didn't know what I was going to call myself. And I've, I've actually never named a single band I've been in. That's a little fun fact about me. I've never... <laughs> Never named a band I've been in. I think that's a, that's really says like something the, about you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I was like the front man of several of those, I I never named them. So, one day I was uh, in my house. I think I had just come out of a meditation, and the I it wasn't the word Oneno didn't come to me. It was an idea. I love palindromes. And for those that don't know, palindromes are words, you, words that you can read both forwards and backwards. And so I love the idea of palindromes and how they have this kind of circular feeling to them. And then I also love the idea of oneness and how we're all connected. That was a huge part of my spiritual growth was learning that we are all deeply connected. And, uh, and this whole phrase that kept coming up, I have it tattooed on my arm. It's a Sanskrit phrase that is tattvamasi, which is translated to I am you and you are me, or you are that. And uh, so it's basically talking about the oneness of everybody. And so one day, this idea of taking the word one, O-N-E, and turning it into a palindrome just kind of popped into my mind. Yeah. And so then I pronounced that Oneno, and it's spelled O-N-E-N-O. And uh it also, just from a pure artist side, came from the fact that I wanted to define my word. Because at that time, I was thinking about what if I went by the artist name Galaxy, and I might spell it, you know, very artistically. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm thinking, like, as soon as you say the word Galaxy, everybody has a picture in their mind. They have an internal definition of what you're saying. Yeah. And I want my music to define who I am. I want my sound to define who I am as an artist. And so I loved this idea that I could say, my artist name is Oneno. If somebody says, what's your artist name? I say, Oneno. I love that there's two reactions always. The first reaction is, what? Who <laughs> <laughs> knows what I'm saying? Yeah. And I love that because then that backs up the second reaction, which is that they, they don't know what to think about it. And so I love then that my art is the thing that can be associated with the name. And so the name has a lot of meaning. For those watching the video podcast, I got my symbol yes. up there on the wall. And my that. symbol is based on the flower of life symbol. So I'm sure listeners out there that can't see it, you'll know what the flower of life symbol is. That was massively important to me on my spiritual awakening journey. I'll drop one little seed here really quick. There's, there's a, uh, a engraving of this symbol on some Egyptian ruins that are insanely old and it boggles scientists' minds because when they analyze this symbol and like the makeup of the stone that it's etched into, it's not etched, it's laser engraved. And yet this stone and this temple is from thousands of years ago. So it's laser engraved how? and they're like, how? how, how is this? I mean, their best guess is some type of laser engraving. But they're not saying it was literally laser engraved. They're just like, we have no idea how they could have done this. And then the next layer of the symbol is that it pops up in basically every single culture across the globe. 
especially way back in the day when cultures can't talk to each other. It's not like they have the internet to copy each other's symbolism. So this is a, a symbol that in its inherent meaning is about the connection of humanity, the connection of our soul. That's beautiful. And so I, I got the name Oneno, and then I'm like, I'm putting it in the flower of life, and that's going to summarize everything that I'm about. Whatever. So that going into your content, can you kind of, again, yeah, you, so you got the, the 21 days of meditation program that, mm -hmm. you, that you do. Can you kind of like walk us through that briefly? Yeah, awesome. Thanks for that question. So in 2014, I did a yoga teacher training and uh, yoga and meditation became deeply important for me. When I, when I quit working with Re in uh, the very beginning of 2011, some major life changes happened in my life. Uh, my dad, who I told you guys was a pastor, he ended up coming out of the closet as gay. And that revolutionized my family and all of our friends and a lot of drama happened. And so six months later, I realized how depressed I was from quitting the Rihanna gig and having a type of PTSD experience with that. And I'm only going to say that because that's what my therapist later ended up helping me understand. I was going through a form of PTSD because we think of PTSD as like, bombs going off overseas in a war, but realistically PTSD is anytime you go through an experience that other people literally cannot understand. And now you're living with that. And that was literally what was happening. Nobody could understand what I had just seen. And so I felt insanely isolated and I, I reached eventually because of that. And because of my family stuff, I reached a massive depression. And so then I eventually, through the help of my therapist, I found yoga and meditation, as well as many other incredible books along those subjects. And uh, I threw myself into it. And then in 2014, I did a yoga teacher training. And by the time I got to the end of that training, I realized I, I do love teaching yoga, but I love teaching meditation more. There's something inside my soul. I consider myself an old soul that just knows that process. And so I feel very capable of articulating that to help people get into that space. And, um, and so then, yeah, as soon as I finished the teacher training, I thought maybe it was like a year later, but then I thought I want to put together a course so I can help people get into this internal space that I feel that has really revolutionized my depression and my inner state. And so I'm just, a, I'm extremely passionate about meditation. I'm extremely passionate about yoga because when I say this was the deepest, darkest time of my life, it's an understatement. And if it wasn't for those two elements, along with the plethora of other stuff that you need to help with mental health, but those two elements specifically revolutionized my depression. Are there, a couple, are there a couple of tips you can give people, you know, you know, either struggling or just trying to get into meditating and stuff, obviously without divulging too much, everyone yeah. should, you know, subscribe to you, your, I, I yeah, get a sure. Patreon. Um, yeah, I got know, a Patreon all that. But... But... Yeah, if you go, first of all, if you go to my website, which is imoneno.com, there's a meditation page and you can buy the course. Uh, but you can also find me on YouTube. I did a, a series for all of 2017 called Meditation Monday. So there's like 50 free meditations you can do that are guided by me on my YouTube. So you can check those out for free. 
Um, but yeah, my biggest tip would be, uh, first of all, I like to demystify meditation. A lot of people hear that word and they immediately have some sort of mental image about what that is. Well, I like to say that meditation is the only activity of inactivity that we promote in our society. So meditation is not actually doing anything. In fact, it's the opposite. You're trying to not do anything. And here's, here's where it becomes mystical is because the goal, I think, in meditation is to literally just sit and be comfortable not doing anything, not focusing your mind towards something. I'm not actually a fan of using meditation and visualization together. I think visualization is an amazing technique. And there's some forms of visualization I do when I teach people. But realistically, when I'm talking visualization, people think like, you know, if I want this dream job or dream relationship or whatever. They think they got to visualize it. And then they try to go into meditation. They try to visualize those things. I'm not against that, but I don't think that that's the core of what meditation actually is, especially when you understand Eastern philosophy and the way that the yogis teach it. What meditation really is, is it starts like this. Sit down, close your eyes, breathe deeply, and don't move. <laughs> and then watch your brain start to freak the fuck out. Like, that's the See, I think that's an important step. point right there. Is I don't is think I'm, yeah, I don't that, think... but that's a scary moment. I feel like when people are first getting into meditating, is again, you're you you sit there and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be shut off, but all I can do is think, right? And that's okay. Like this is in the beginning, that's okay, because realistically, what you're doing is you're actually learning to be comfortable with that discomfort. You're learning to be comfortable with that kind of internal rub that you're going to feel in the very beginning. You know, when I started my meditation journey, I'm massively depressed. And so I'm like wanting relief from my depression. Then I sit in meditation. All I can think is these, you know, over the top negative thoughts. You're a failure for quitting working with Re. You're never going to be as successful again. And all of this kind of like mental beating me up, right? But meditation is... If I can sit here and I can count my breath, one, two, three, four, five, as I breathe in and one, two, three, four, five, as I breathe out, the moment I see another thought come in, I can welcome it. So I'm not fighting it. So the thought comes in that says, you're a failure. And I say, oh, hello there. <laughs> and then the next thing I do is I say, now's not the time for you. Please move along. And I let that thought pass on by and I just come back to one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And it's, it's something that is very basic and yet incredibly powerful because the, the less attached we can become to our internal thinking, the clearer we can be internally, the clearer we can actually find our creative voice if you're a creative, uh, but also it, this is now where the conversation may launch into Joe Dispenza or Neville Goddard or Abraham Hicks or things like that. Because then it's from this inner state of peace that then the law of attraction really ramps up. But it's fascinating because it's something that you don't do that then leads to that. You don't visualize. You don't sit there and like try to pump your brain full of stuff. You sit there and try to empty yourself. And the more you empty, the more peaceful you become, the more aligned you feel, the more at peace you feel. Those things that you really want naturally come in. You don't have to fight for them. You don't have to fight your mind to visualize them. 
they start being attracted to you because you're finally at a higher vibration of peace. Peace is higher than chaos. So that's, that's maybe how I would summarize it. Uh, but meditation is very simple and it doesn't have to be hard. The hardest thing is that we just, we immediately feel that discomfort and we want to run. But if you can sit through it, that discomfort goes down over time. And then you start looking at meditation as this beautiful retreat from the chaos of the world around you. That's beautiful. I love that. So we only, we only have a few, few more minutes with you. I have a, yeah. I have a couple questions. Um, you made the transition from working with Rihanna. You went through that, that struggle, that depression, to becoming a producer, mm -hmm. which you always were. But yeah. putting your focus towards production. Yeah. How, how has that been for you? I mean, I know just recently you, you had a huge release with Cyberpunk. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, how has that felt, yeah. man? I mean, like the end of 2020 for most people was a struggle. But for you, I mean, man, that was, that was a big moment for you. I mean, you had your, your song awesome. was the, the soundtrack the to the trailer. trailer. Of yeah. one of the biggest games, the, or, or the one biggest of the game most hyped games of 2020. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and to be honest, man, I, I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I live in Hollywood. I drive by every bus station and every billboard through mm -hmm. October, November, December of 2020 was cyberpunk. Yep. And I thought I of you every time. Wild. I know. I, you would text me too, and I love that. And there's, there's probably a piece that we probably shouldn't put in here for legal restrictions, but uh, <laughs> yeah. let's be honest, man. I, no, let's be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> I love you. You were in Nashville. There was no billboards in Nashville. The yeah, cyberpunk yeah, no. billboards were in, in LA. <laughs> they had them in yep. the bus stations. There was one night where... And they had a couple too many shipyard beers, and <laughs> I ended up going down to the bus station far away from my house. I made sure I, you know, I had a driver, and she, dro she drove me down a couple bus stations down. I found a rock. I threw it at that glass. I thought it would break. It didn't break. I was trying to get you that poster. Like, my dream is to mail you that poster. Because as a friend, I was so proud of you, man. Dude, I was yeah. so proud was like of you, brother. That's the ultimate bro move right there. Not just buying a poster, but stealing a poster. That's official. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you didn't, didn't get in trouble for that. But it was it's wild to see that stuff everywhere. Like, it was so cool. So briefly, that part of the story is... I made this, I made this song called makes me feel better in 2012. Oh, wow. And I, this was alongside that other song I mentioned earlier called bullet through my brain. It was on that album I did with my brother and, uh, and I made it in 2012 and I don't want to name names for this part of my story, but I ended up getting signed on this record with somebody and they were you know, it was kind of a real LA type thing. They were like, you're, you're amazing. Your music is incredible. We're going to get this in movies and trailers and all of this, this and that. And then three or so years later, when none of that had happened, I confronted this person and they were like, well, you know what? This music really kind of sucks and it's not our fault. It's really your fault. You should just leave this music in the past and make better music. And I was like, um, I disagree. And so now we're going to go two different ways. Yeah. And so that's also kind of along the time that I decided to move to Nashville because I was just really getting done with the petty bullshit of Los Angeles. So 
Then fast forward 2017, I get a, a prompt one day that cyberpunk is looking for music and I submit that song and I start making other music that I can submit to them. And then I, I got the email that they were going to use the song in the game. And I thought that was like the peak of the story. I'm like, this is incredible that it's going to be in the video game somewhere. And then fast forward to 2019, one of the other songs I made, which is called Dirty Roses, they used that in one of their live streams where they were debuting the game for the first time and like showing some of the game mechanics. Did you know they were going to use that? No idea. Oh, wow. I had no idea. And I'm sitting there on the couch with my girl. And all of a sudden, it was like that moment in the movie, that thing you do, where they're like, they hear their song on the radio for the first time yes. and they freak the fuck out. They all freak out in the car. That was one of my favorite yeah, moments exactly. growing up. Yeah, running down the sidewalk to go put it on in the other place. So that was how I felt in that moment. I can imagine. And then like a whole year went by because they were supposed to drop the game in April 2020. And then they pushed it back to November and then eventually December. Uh, but in November, I believe it was, they dropped their last gameplay or their last game trailer. And I had no idea. I was just watching it because I'm interested. My music's in the game, but I'm also becoming a fan. Like this game just looks super badass. So I'm watching the trailer. It's like a five minute trailer. And it gets to the last 45 seconds of the game. And all of a sudden, it's my song, Makes Me Feel Better, jamming, just jamming right at the end. And then it finishes with my song playing as it drops the title, Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, my what a feeling. Yeah, what did that feel like, man? Yeah. Oh, it was, it was wild. I was by myself, too. So it was just so wild because I was all of a sudden like buzzing, like a fire had just been lit under my butt. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this energy right now. Like, this is insane. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it was so wild. This, that moment is probably my favorite moment of all of that. But then I, I bought the game and I, I've been playing it for the last few months. And so they didn't, they didn't send it. They didn't send you a copy. Come on. Cyberpunk. They didn't, no, they didn't even tell them that the well, song that, that, was that, that, in there. That, that send them yeah. a copy of the game, Yeah, please. but you would, you would think that they'd yeah. actually tell them, hey, the song's going to be in there. She should be excited. That's no, true. it's the worst. That's, no. yeah, that, that's, so what are, you, what are you playing on? What are you playing it on? I got the PS5. I spent so long trying to get a PS5. And the crazy shit is I got the video game before I got the PS5. So it was sitting in my house, unplayable for uh, like maybe three weeks. But eventually uh, I got the PS5 and I, I play it that way. But then it's crazy because my, my two songs show up on two different radio stations in the game. <laughs> boom, boom, city. boom. So, dude, yeah. so, so tell me this. So, you and... Wait, 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 wait. So, what, what was the other song? What yeah. was the oh, other yeah. Song? Oh, yeah. What was the other song? That, that song is called Dirty Roses. Uh, so, my two songs are Makes Me Feel Better and Dirty Roses. And, uh, the, yeah, they show up in the game. And it's crazy. Just, like, driving around the city and all of a sudden my song comes on the radio. Because it's just so wild. You know? It's like I have a very visceral memory of sitting in my home studio making that music. Yeah, and now I'm seeing it in this like dystopian video game, and it's wild. It's wild. That's incredible, man. I mean, the the biggest game of 2020. You, yeah, you, legit. You have legit. not only the trailer song, but multiple songs in the game. So yep. you finish 2020 like that. 2021. Wh what's up next, man? I mean, you you did you not just you just released the EP, right? Yeah. 
So I in on January 1st of this year, I dropped an EP called Laser Burn. And uh, you can find it on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube. Uh, we'll put the we'll put Burn. the link yep. somewhere yeah, yeah. next somewhere to the clickable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh this album, it's a three-song EP, and it's uh three of the songs that I wrote for Cyberpunk. I wrote about 14 uh for the for to pitch, and they took two of them. So then I chose these other three that I think are some of the best songs I've made just in general. And um, so I put them together on an EP and it was called Laser Burn and you can find that online. And I dropped that. And then uh, after playing the video game, I got even more into this cyberpunk vibe. So I'm working on a song right now that uh, I don't know if I have an official title for it yet, um, but it's it's going to be called something along the lines of like, Johnny Relax. Keanu Reeves' character is named Johnny. Yep. And uh, I found this really funny old TV sample that just goes, Johnny Relax. (laughs) Like just before the drop of this cyberpunk theme song. So, yeah, keep Uh, it So that's literally, yeah, there's no way. You you made music already for them. There's no way they say no to this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Can't, can't say no. Yeah, so this one is like just super inspired by the music in the game and uh, the composers that made the music in this game, like serious props to those guys. The soundtrack is absolutely bananas and it inspired me to make some more music kind of in that zone. That's incredible. Last call. Yeah. Oh, shit. Last call. We all know what that sound. We all know what that sound means on that. We have to get, we're getting kicked out of this place right now. (laughs) One last thing for you, man, before we go, thank you so much. First of all, dude, this has been incredible. You're I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, man. I'm so grateful that you joined us on the show. It's been amazing. And my, my one last question, um, actually two questions for you. Can you send me me, uh, a lobster roll with this sauce on it? Like once a week? Cause this is one of my favorite meals that I've ever had. And then two, <laughs> if you had an autobiography written about your life coming out today, what would the title be, Onena? Ooh, autobiography? Hmm. Well, considering I've never named a band before, I don't know if I can name a book. But <laughs> so maybe so, so so the nameless Onena. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it'd probably it'd probably have to be something along the lines of uh yeah. Maybe it'd be a how-to book. I'm kind of I feel like I'm kind of a uh spiritual teacher of sorts. Not that yeah, that sounds too uh too much of a high fluting title for me, but I'd maybe make a how-to book and I would just call it How to Love. And it'd be I simple. It'd be it. simple. I love that. It'd just be about living in truth and showing up to people without an image of who you think they should be. That speaks to your soul, man. It really yep. does. The the story that's we my, heard from That's you my today. daily mantra. I love that. Man. I mean, can we get one more cheers to it now, right one now? One more cheers to you, brother. Yeah. Jesus. You boys are amazing. Thank you for having me on. Spent with all our 